This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Today I'm thrilled to be interviewing Goop Dhaliwal. Gurpreet Dhaliwal goes uh, affectionately by Goop uh, all around. And uh, Goop has, a re- has had a remarkable and really distinctive career and I'm going to start, as you probably guessed I would have, with a brief reading from an article about Goop uh, from the New York Times. And the article's uh, title is, uh, For Second Opinion, Consult a Computer? Question uh, mark. This is from December 3rd, 2012. And this actually comes from a conference that I have run every year for the last 20 years. The man on stage had his audience of 600 mesmerized. Over the course of 45 minutes, the tension grew. Finally, the moment of truth arrived, and the room was silent with anticipation. At last, he spoke. Lymphoma with secondary hemophagocytic syndrome, he said. The crowd erupted in applause. (laughs) Professionals in every field revere their superstars, and in medicine, the best diagnosticians are held in particularly high esteem. Dr. Gupreet Dhaliwal, 39 at the time, I guess, a self-effacing associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, is considered one of the most skillful clinical diagnosticians in practice today. To observe him at work is like watching Steven Spielberg tackle a script or Rory McIlroy a golf course. That was when Rory McIlroy was playing very well. <laughs> so maybe, uh, maybe there's a cautionary tale. <laughs> this article, well. is, as some of you know, was written by my wife, uh, who writes for the Times, and I had her come to observed Goop, and she was as flabbergasted as the rest of us are when, uh, uh, when we see that. So this, I'm sure you've heard this, seen it all over the place. Uh, when, you, uh, when this article came out, uh, how'd you feel? Yeah, I mean, I didn't, um, I, well, just when the article was written, I think we were going to talk about sort of diagnosis and computers, and so I said, well, that's great, I'm happy uh, to be a part of it, and they said, hey, some guy's going to come and take a picture of you, I said, that would be cool, and then that day I opened up the New York Times and there I was instead of the computer. <laughs> and it wound up being, it was a great experience. And um, I must say, you know, it's an interesting thing about being in the press, which is not something that as a teacher you normally do. So it was a moment to understand, like, um, to educate people about like, what diagnosis is and what we do as doctors. And it got me a lot of opportunities to talk to people who are interested in this, as much about diagnosis as I am, which I never thought would be the case. So the other, the other media uh, analog that comes along a lot is Dr. House. Yeah. And I've heard you compare to the, uh, the medical version, the real-life version, <laughs> yeah. the academic version, the non-drug addict version yeah, of Dr. Agree. House, all sorts of... So when you hear that analogy, how do you think about that one? Yeah, I, well, the analogy is made from time to time for me or anyone else who sort of loves diagnosis or even just internists in general. And I would say, yeah, the first thing about him is He's got a tremendous amount of smarts, right? So we all aspire for uh, that level of intellect, and it's certainly a requirement for uh, being good at diagnosis to have great domain knowledge. But I think the foil that quickly comes up is that none of us want his bedside manner. Um, And one of the things that winds up being a truth that you learn when you get to tell people about that contrast is that um, being nice to patients and being kind to patients isn't just something that you should do. It's actually super important for getting the diagnosis. What you will find is that there's so many arguments that are well-founded for building rapport with people. It gives them a great experience. It shows respect. Uh, But if you do circle back to that core job we're trying to do, which is just what's wrong with this patient, uh, what you learn time and time again is one of the other benefits 
is as you build that rapport with them, oftentimes the diagnosis gets handed to you or the clue uh, behind the diagnosis gets handed to you on account of that rapport. So uh, the analogy serves in that way as well. Let's talk a little bit about your upbringing and particularly if someone looked back now 40 years later, were there, were there clues that you would become who you are today from your upbringing? Yeah, I, and I should say, just to be fair, I, before the house and other things, analogies are made, I make no claims to being better at diagnosis than anyone else. My, my claim is a tremendous enthusiasm for that part of the job of being a doctor. Maybe we can talk later. There are ways you can send a score. I will claim for you that you're better at diagnosis than everybody else, <laughs> even if you're not going to. <laughs> there are ways you can measure it, but we'll get to that later. But yeah. um, up origin stories. So everyone has their up origin stories, and I'm always skeptical of sort of a retrospective uh, construction. I grew up in Wisconsin, which was a small town called Racine, Wisconsin, and both of my parents were physicians, and they uh, were allergists, and they, they just retired last year after 43 years together in private practice in a small town uh, in Wisconsin. And, and what may be amazing is that they practiced for that long. What's probably even more amazing is that they practiced together. <laughs> so, uh, they, they had a wonderful career and they had a wonderful career together. Um, I'm sometimes, you know, you say because your parents were doctors, you became a doctor. And I don't know, there was not exactly that one-to-one -one connection. I, but I can't discount like seeing two people who absolutely love their profession and what it involved. Uh, didn't have an influence on me. They didn't make me be a doctor, but they were thrilled that I followed in their uh, footsteps. And as you think about the things you like to do and the focus that you've had on your career, were there parts of your upbringing, parts of what they did very well or what they seem to be passionate about that ultimately uh, you can trace to what you've chosen to focus on? I think, um, it, I, I, I wonder sometimes about this, like what is it that makes you one want to become a doctor? And somehow early on, I definitely picked up on the sort of... Um, uh, problem-solving aspect of it. At, at that time, I would say it was total blinding naivete, right? You come to a place like this or you uh, come in the medical profession and you learn a doctor can do anything from studying a single gene to changing global health policy, right? I mean, you can work on either one of those scales. But I had this total naivete, which is like, what else does a doctor do but solve problems, which was probably more informed from sort of our lay impression of doctors. And so when I entered the profession, I think it was just that singular impression, that's what doctors do, uh, but maybe not anything antecedent to that. I love, you know, I love the sciences and the problem solving that was there, and, and sometimes I'm very clear on people. I don't, I don't think, I, I would think I was drawn to the profession for that part. I don't think I ever wrote a personal statement that says, you know, I want to help people, which I know sometimes we, we sort of um, uh, can say is a, a stock phrase. I would say much more I love the problem solving, and then I grew into loving helping people, uh, and the two now are in an awesome synergy. So if someone had asked you during your residency what you wanted to do, what would you have said? Um, I went through all sorts of iterations, but I knew I wanted to be an internist right in med school because it was that same thing. I said, what else does a doctor do besides uh, solve problems of what's going on with the patient. Uh, during residency, I had these uh, small uh, iterations of trying to do research. I learned quickly that I admired researchers, but I didn't like the time that I was spending research. I was in the prime program where uh, Calvin Chow headed it when I was in R2, and then Jeff Colas arrived when I was in R3. And I really appreciated what they were teaching us, but I saw this opportunity cost of, that was taking me away from teaching and actually just reading about medicine. That was my first signal that I wanted to be in that domain. Um, and then I would say even, I grappled a little bit with the idea of being a pulmonologist. And the reason was um, I, I really wanted to take care of sort of the more acute patients because I saw that as an opportunity to do diagnostic dilemmas. 
but it was born out of the fact that there was no other way to stay in the hospital. Hospital medicine, I graduated in 1998, uh, it wasn't a widespread model, so if I, didn't, if I wanted to be a generalist or see a lot of broad patients, but I also wanted to do it in the hospital, I, I entertained that as an option. Fortunately, I was able to stay a generalist in a job where they had someone who attended a lot on the wards. They didn't use the word hospitalist back then, and that served me really well since. Can you talk about a couple of role models for you, people who, when you saw them, you said, oh, that's a piece of what I want to do and what you learned from them? Yeah, and then, you know, we, we think now about sort of who are our role models and our sponsors and our advisors, but without a doubt, my main role model was LT, or Larry Tierney. Um, and what I saw in him was a model of someone who loved medicine, loved teaching, and was excellent in both of them. I mean, he was exceptional and remains so uh, to this day. Uh, and at that time, it was just a mentor, a model. I saw that job, and I said, is there any conceivable way I can get to there? And I actually saw a lot of other attendings we have around here who also modeled both of those things. So I had an idea that it was a career path, but the truth is when you ask people, hey, can I replicate that? Um, you would get instructions to go on much more standard paths, like you should try research or you should um, really focus on a clinical area and become one expert in that, per se. What, when people gave you that advice, where do you think that was coming from? I think from a very good place. It said that is a tried and true method. You know, you've elaborated that you want to be a teacher. That oftentimes means you need to stay in an academic center if you want to do it in spades. And there is, at that time, there were a few paths to staying in an academic center if you want to teach on the side. The idea that you would sort of just do a lot of general medicine and have a lot of face time with learners and just try to excel at both of those two skills, taking care of patients and taking care of um, learners was, it existed, but it wasn't a path that anyone would advise you to try to make it on. Mm -hmm. And so I recognized back then I was going a bit off the beaten path, but I said, I'll try it for a couple of years. The fact that you, uh, you could argue that Larry Tierney was the prior generation's version of you and there will probably be one more like you following <laughs> both of you at the VA. Is it necessary to be at the VA to have the job that you have staked out for yourself and yeah, Larry staked out for himself? I think, I mean, all of us are a function. You know, we love to make these stories like it was my hard work and it was everything I did that made me where I am. But there's a, no doubt that we're a function of the surrounding, both the people and the environment that we're in. And I think the VA, in my story, has been a big part of it. Like the... The VA, I can think of LT's career, for instance, it allowed him to practice in multiple settings. Like one of the things, if you're really interested in having clinical excellence is that you need, in general medicine, is that you need to cross-train. The way we have athletes who do sort of decathlons or um, they're cross-training in multiple different sports. And at the VA, at that time, there was an opportunity to do uh, general medicine, the wards, the ICU. So LT, for instance, was in clinic, wards, and ICU. Um, by the time I came around, you were no longer allowed to dabble in the ICU if you so desired, but I had this great opportunity and still have to this day to spend half my time in the emergency room. Um, and there's very few settings where an internist can practice in an emergency room. And if you really want an awesome diagnostic laboratory, it's hard to beat that. And so I'm very grateful for the VA for that. Um, there's also the balance. I think a super important thing for me of the VA in retrospect is that I see bread and butter. So sometimes people are interested in sort of carving out a different skill around diagnosis, and they say, I really want to get good at, at diagnosing rare stuff. Mm -hmm. I want to pick out the needle in the haystack. I want to find the challenging diagnosis that um, no one else can find. And, and I get that, and you know, that's what makes great TV like House and other things. But uh, for day-to-day -day life, what you'd much rather have, I think, as a practicing physician 
is the ability to recognize the 10 different versions of CHF and the tricky ways that gout shows up and how um, temporal arteritis can sometimes fake you out. And so I've been very appreciative of being at a university where my practice setting is a lot of bread and butter medicine punctuated with, with a ton of variation punctuated with rare cases and then the ability to learn from all the unusual cases in our three hospital system. So you take a job, I guess after your chief residency, mm -hmm. that is in some ways the shape of it's not that dissimilar to the one that you have now or yeah. maybe and is it do you decide at some point I want to be this amazing diagnostician I want that to be my brand or did it just was that kind of an epiphany one day this is what I want my persona to be and this is what I need to do to achieve that career path or did it just sort of happen that you were doing your thing and you had success and people gave you good feedback and you kept doing more of it and then you got asked to speak and end up in the newspaper, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's a little more of the latter, which I actually think is the much more characteristic path of a lot of our careers. You know, you'll hear people sort of espouse five-year plans, et cetera. Uh, but I think a lot more of us, especially as you start out as a generalist in both ways, are just trying to say, I have a job, how can I seek excellence in it? And that then, as it is now, just trying for excellence was its own reward. Um, you know, um, but the, here's the thing that I ran into, which is I said, I really do want to be great at this. Like, I, I, teaching is an important skill. How do I get better at it? Uh, figuring out what's wrong with people and putting on the right label on them is important. How do I get better at it? And I'd go around and ask people. I'd say, well, you know, how, you know these great attending and say, how do you get good? Um, and everyone gives the same advice. Everyone would say, well, you just need to read a lot. You need to see a lot of patients. And even back then, I was like, that can't be right. All doctors read a lot. That's how we got here. <laughs> and everyone sees a lot of patients. Everyone's busy. There, you ha there has to be something else behind this, even if the people who I want to emulate can't tell me how to do it. Um, and uh, fortunately, what happened two or three years into my faculty, is I took, uh, faculty existence, I took this teaching scholars program. And they had a session on clinical reasoning. So D Dave Irby was one of the instructors, and he said, hey, there's this whole field called clinical reasoning. And I said, that's terrific. That's what I admire in my uh, mentors and these faculty role models. So I said, all right, note to self. There's this study on how the brain solves problems. I'm going to learn about it. And that was part of it. And then six months later in the course, uh, Dr. Irby gave a second section on expertise, totally unrelated. But he said, you know, there's a whole science on how people don't uh, just achieve experience, but they try to get continually better and better at it. And he didn't mean expertise as a competitive phrase. He meant how you achieve your maximal uh, performance yourself. And so when I heard those two things and I juxtaposed them, that gave me an approach to uh, trying to train myself fundamentally. And that's what I've adopted for the years that followed. So why don't you give us the cliff notes of that approach? <laughs> yeah. what, what do you so, actually do? I mean, and really, it's, uh, the clinical reasoning stuff is less informative than the expertise literature, which again, the name is, is not meant to be um, off-putting. It's just, if you're trying to get good at something, there is a science in other fields on how you do this. And so you have to identify what's the thing that you do. So the thing that I, I, I want to get better at was labeling what this person has. It's a very, it involves logic, it involves data collection, problem solving analysis. So I said, that's my skill. I want to analyze a case. Then you take those skills and you really have to start to say, what's the way I can increase the number of times my brain sees those problems? And then what's the way I can increase um, the feedback I get on that work? And then there's a third component, which is if you're really trying to build knowledge, which is how many times can I quiz myself? Or it's something that's called retrieval practice. 
which means how many times can I pull that knowledge out of my memory and try to apply it? And what happens is many, many times we're wrong, but with those repetitive rounds of practice, we get better. So just an example, how can I increase the number of times that I see stuff? Well, I have an 80% clinical job. I had that when I started, and I still have 80% clinical, and I moonlit uh, my first uh, 10 years on faculty or so. So I just was increasing a huge number of N. Um, then feedback, I learned quickly that when you start tracking cases, it is an incredibly valuable exercise. But how, do you, how do you do it, by the way? Good. So I, well, when I, I've gone through all sorts of lists over the years. So I went from post-it notes, which only lasted so long, to um, uh, Blackbook, where I used to keep records of things, to Excel spreadsheets. Now you can tag it in the EMR. Uh, but really finding out what happened to your patients. I learned this the most when I started moonlighting, and I admit all sorts of bread and butter at one of the local hospitals. And I was like, I got this. You know, I'm getting the hang of this thing, diabetic infection, gout, CHF. Um, but I, I quickly started learning that my CHF was a pneumonia, and I had given you know, IV antibiotics to venous stasis, um, and I started trying to realize how I could get better and better at it. And then that third part of the approach is what's called retrieval practice, which um, you said, how can I quiz myself fundamentally more and more? You know, all of us took tests to get here, so we're relieved when the tests go away. Um, but if you study how people sharpen their mind around a domain, you actually continually try to test yourself. So I give myself, for lack of a better word, many, many different quizzes in my reading and my day activity. Like, what do you actually do? So, like, the, the thing I did for the longest period of time was reading the New England Journal of Medicine, CPC. And there's a, uh, the way I read it isn't sort of enjoying it. Like, it's not a pleasurable, I actually read it in an incredibly <laughs> effortful way. So the fun way to read it, and I do this when I'm sort of in my low energy mode, is I just sort of skim through it, and I'm I'm reading the smart person. I'm like, yeah, I know what they're saying. I would have been thinking the same thing. But that's really, just a, that's really just a fantasy in my mind. And when I get to the end, I recreate a story that I would have gotten there. Mm -hmm. now, the real way I read it is much more that I go paragraph by paragraph, and I'm reading it with pen and paper. And then I say, oh, man, I'm out in left field. The discussant was two steps ahead of me, and she recognizes that. You actually cover up the part after. And the CPS that comes once a month, I cover it up completely. Yeah. The CPC, you have to stop yourself and think along the way. Got it. You're an extraordinary diagnostician, you're an extraordinary teacher, but the thing that you do that I think you do better than anyone I've ever seen is think out loud. Thank you. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think Katie captured it very well. I mean, one of the things that's so remarkable about watching you do that is that while you're hearing this unknown case yeah. in front of 600 people, you have to be in the back of your mind thinking, oh my God, I'm not going to mention the diagnosis. I'm going to make an ass of myself. And both of those things have happened, by of the course, way. At least the first part. Of course they have. And, and, but you are constantly sort of processing what's going on and are able to verbalize it in a, in a way that audiences find accessible. Uh, how do you do that? Yeah, well, I appreciate that compliment. It is something I strive for. I must say some of my mentors who I've tried to emulate, they do that first part of getting the diagnosis better than I do. I think there are people who get it at a much higher reliable rate. So my goal is, can I make my thinking clear? And you raised a good point. Like, let's say it's the, this, the high theater of unknown cases in front of a crowd. Um, it is very hard to think out loud about a subject uh, skillfully for the first time in front of a crowd. But I have to tell you, this gets back to practice. A lot of what I'm drawing on is that I've thought this out many times before. Even kind of an, you know, an esoteric thing, like why are thrombocytopenia and anemia grouped together? Or what happens when a farmer um, in northern Michigan has a rash like this? I mean, these sort of unusual combinations and scenarios, 
either by virtue of having taught about it, and I will say, I can think back to some of the spiels I give on stage come back from attending rounds I've given, from student lectures I've done, to many of you I've explained things when we're on walk rounds together. I, I pull those back and I use them in the moment. Um, but there's other times where it just is revealing the, the margin of my knowledge. So I say what I know and I say this is where I'm stuck. And I think once I got comfortable saying that in front of a crowd, it became very liberating. How important is it in those settings to get the diagnosis right? Uh, it's nice, you know, it's sort of like, um, <laughs> what can I say, that there's a nice warm uh, glow that happens in the room when the discussant gets the diagnosis right. It's like a magic trick. Case. Yeah, it's a bit of a magic trick. And I must say, like, I think people are really pulling for you. I think one of the things that I really appreciated is I think, you know, you, uh, people aren't coming to see like a public hanging. Like they're not looking to see you, <laughs> they're not looking to see you get it wrong. Um, and I think it's really nice that people are pulling for you. I, I must say, and I, I should take it back to the microcosm of rounds, whether it's standing in front of a crowd or maybe just making a proclamation as a teacher at Morning Report or telling your team like, you know, this, this is not going to be um, cellulitis. This is clearly gout. We make these proclamations, right? And um, you get comfortable having, after having enough humble pie to recognize that you're making an educated guess. And so if you're keeping score or mental score, you recognize that you can't get them all. Um, but you hope that your rates are improving over time. So some people want to emulate you and just feel like the foundational knowledge that you need to do that is so high that it's almost daunting. And you teach learners from first year medical students, second year medical students. So talk about the process of going from novice to expert and, and, and how important that foundational knowledge is, particularly in the age of Google. Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. People, um, so this may sound uh, non-contemporary, but I actually think memorization is incredibly important. So I know that sounds very perhaps countercultural, sort of in the age of Google that everything is at your um, fingertips. But you know, having information, like infinite access doesn't equal infinite wisdom, right? It, it's, um, it, just because I own a Spanish-English dictionary at home doesn't mean I'm fluent in Spanish. So it's not, you need to have had a huge amount of dwell time with the topic before your brain has grappled with something enough to problem solve mm -hmm. with it. It doesn't mean that you can't start early. Like there's studies that show if we show uh, medical students just a few series of rashes or a few EKGs, they can very quickly start problem solving. So it's not that you have to have a massive amount of knowledge, but the knowledge has to be there first. There's no such thing as innate reasoning skill. Um, and sometimes people think like, and that's how we know it's intricately tied to knowledge. Like you might say, you know, I'm a reasonably good reasoner around jaundice. Uh, but that, and most of you guys are too, because we all have seen a decent amount of jaundice, so I can reason about it. Um, but like, if the Wi-Fi goes down at my house, I'm not a good reasoner. <laughs> and the reason is because I don't have, as many years as I've tried, I don't have good knowledge around the Wi-Fi network at my house. So it's not an innate trait about me of being a good reasoner or not. It's how much time I've tried to upload that um, knowledge around jaundice, and then how many times I've practiced retrieving it for different problems. So if people ask, they say, you know, what should I do? I'm like, you should read a little bit, but at some point you have to start practicing. Mm -hmm. And I gave an example of that CPC as sort of a, you know, a long form of it, but there's lots of ways you can practice much shorter cases or much shorter problems or just put yourself in front of more cases. So for, let's say, the house staff or a medical student, if you wanted, didn't aspire to have be you and have this be your career, but want to just get better at it, what's a habit that you'd like them to 
to do that's doable. Yeah, no, I, and I think that's the goal. Like, you should just want to try to get better at it, right? It's the most important procedure we do is thinking through things. So um, I think there's, can I plug two habits? Sure. One, I think, is tracking your cases. If you, if you have to pick one habit, I think the best form of CME is tracking your cases and finding out what happens. It's, it's very laborious, but it is so instructive. So I just want to uh, plug that. But then the second thing is saying, okay, in my universe, like whatever it is, my workflow, how many times, how can I put myself in front of more cases? Because residency is difficult and so will be the fellowship or faculty careers that follow. Um, but however many cases you have, I think it's a fair statement to say it won't be enough. And by that I just mean that if you can find yourself in front of more cases, you will see the problems and deepen your knowledge of it. So it might be physical. It might be like, I took a job that's a little more clinically busy, or I took a job that stretched me and put me in the emergency room or had me covering surgical patients. Or, listen, my day job's plenty busy enough, um, but when I come home, instead of getting onto Facebook, I get on the Human Diagnosis Project, or I use Figure One as my app. I take these small micro quizzes uh, to continually expose myself. It's, it's no different if you're an athlete, we'd recognize it. We'd just say practice, practice, practice. The challenge is that our world is the opposite, right? Uh, like musicians and athletes, professionals, they have the whole week to practice and then they only have an hour of performance. Mm -hmm. And our world is the opposite. We have 50 to 70 hours a week or 80 hours a week of performance and you're trying to say in those few extra hours I have a week, what's my practice I'm going to do? Uh, you wrote an article once about what you learned from uh, the Car Talk guys. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so talk a little bit about them and maybe Sherlock Holmes and what you've learned about diagnosis from thinking about similar processes in other non-medical domains. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I love, I, I don't know, I actually have probably more in-depth knowledge about the guys on Car Talk than I do <laughs> about Sherlock Holmes, but I think what I love about both of them is that they are predicated more on putting the label on the problem, which is diagnosis, and then the Rx or the treatment that follows. And it doesn't mean that either one is more important than the other, but the diagnosis is the bigger cognitive task. Once we get the right and correct label on someone, then um, the, the problems, the options that we can do for treatment are much smaller. They're still complicated, but they're smaller. So I think the, um, the things about the guys on Car Talk, there's so many things. I mean, one of them, you know, we're talking about sort of wellness and enjoying your, your job. And one of the things that's probably the best about them is how much they love their work, right? I mean, they laugh a lot. <laughs> so if you haven't listened to this podcast, these are the um, two brothers who uh, click and clack, and they get all of the most challenging cases that you can possibly get for cars that are called into their show. But then um, what you start to learn about them is that their process is very iterative. So they learn a lot because they work in a team. We're learning in diagnosis how um, if you work in teams, you actually can get insights that you won't if you're just trying to do it yourself. And I think that's one of the growth points in diagnosis. Um, I think one of the things that they frequently call, fall back on is not um, textbook knowledge, but you'll see the fundamentally the case reports in their mind that they will call back and I saw an instance of this once or I remember someone who came into our shop with that. It's the exact antithetical thing to sort of evidence-based medicine, which is important, but is this massive aggregation of many, many cases that oftentimes the brain solves problems by analogy, which is like, I saw this once before and I'm adapting it to your scenario. And we do that if you study how we solve um, things with patients as well. Um, and the other thing, which I think we probably don't have enough of, is when two people work together, there's um, a sufficient amount of doubt. Um, and if you study people who get good at judgments, one of the best books about this, so I'm shifting to another one, but it's Phil Tetlock's book called Super Forecasting. He talks about how ordinary people make extraordinary judgments in things like politics. He says one of the key attributes is that they have a healthy amount of self-doubt. They're not paralyzed by it, 
but they are totally open um, to being incorrect or needing their judgment to be revised. And sometimes diagnosis is very final. The guys on Car Talk are the same thing. Like, you know, one of them will be fighting with the other guy, and he'll be like, you know, I think it's okay that you wear a rayon suit in that car while there's sparks flying. And the other guy will be like, no, I'm not sure. That's a good call. And the two of them will sort of judge back and forth with each other. And that second opinion is hard to create for yourself, but the best problem solvers do that. So do you, I mean, do you rely on talking to other people? And it kind of raises the, as you were talking, I was realizing, you know, diagnosis is sometimes a fairly lonely thing. It's just you there and a patient. They had the advantage of the two of them bouncing off each other. There's all sorts of talk about crowdsourcing diagnoses, and you talked about the Human Diagnosis Project. So how do you get the input of others, and what do you think about the idea of, of getting larger groups involved in making hard diagnoses? I think, I mean, even if the, you get to the sort of day-to-day diagnosis, it is true. Diagnosis is a solitary practice for most doctors in most places. We have this incredible luxury here of either being in a training setting or working in teams where some of the most difficult ones, or even our routine ones, we run by someone else as a second check. There was a recent article that was just published in JAMA IM, which showed that when ED docs had a chance to talk to each other, there was some reduction in adverse rates just because they discussed each other's thinking. Um, in real life, of course, we're moving super fast and you don't have that opportunity. But I do think that you learn a lot. Um, Vivek Murthy and I, we're doing a study of some of the master clinicians here at, at UCSF. Vivek's one of our former residents now at Hopkins. And he, we learned that one of the things that some of these clinicians we really admire here did in their early years when they were first starting out was however solitary their practice was, was they found a venue and a social group of doctors that they discussed cases with. So it's not the same as fixing it in the moment, but it is reflecting on your work after it's done. So you know I'll get to artificial intelligence eventually. I want, let me just, yeah. before we get there, um, the field of diagnostic errors has come onto the patient yeah. safety radar screen only in the last five years, sort of ignored for the first 10 yeah, years or so right. of the patient safety field. It's now become a big deal. Why do you think it was ignored, and do you think we're actually making some progress? Yeah, it's interesting. All the early quality and safety stuff sort of presumed that we got the diagnosis right, but then we, you, know, you did wrong surgery, we gave the wrong medication, or we didn't prevent that disease, that thromboembolism. Um, but I think it gets to what I was saying before, like assigning a label properly is, is really tricky, and it's hard to ever know when the diagnosis is truly done. But the things that we do downstream are a much more narrow set of options. So what we've learned, and these are all sorts of studies, it's humbling or encouraging, however you look at it, is docs get the diagnosis right roughly about 85% of the time. And this comes from all sorts of methods, like EMR reviews, autopsy checks, um, malpractice claims. All the estimates are roughly, when any of us are going about our day and we're labeling people, we get it right. And it is a judgment and a label. We get it right about eight to nine times out of 10. And you can look at it like, man, that's great, given all the complexity that goes into diagnosing someone that's terrific. Or you can say, well, patients deserve better. What should we do to get that to 90% or 95% uh, reliably? That's really the motivating force behind the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine and this whole diagnostic error movement. And it gets this thing like our most, we, we worry about all these procedures where we, something goes awry and we have a 1% complication rate or an infection. But uh, the most important procedure we do in medicine is thinking. Um, and for a long time, we haven't paid as much attention as we are now. I mean, my premise has been that part of the reason diagnosis was ignored was it's really hard to measure. It's very hard. It's easy to measure. to measure central line infections, relatively easy to measure medication errors, wrong site surgery, hard to me- measure diagnostic errors. So are we getting any better? Yeah, there, we are getting better, but that still remains sort of a rub. There are, the questions remain sort of 
when did the diagnosis go wrong? Was it when I saw the patient? Or was it okay that you picked up on it the next day when they came back to the ER and collectively as a group we got the diagnosis wrong? I called it migraine, you picked up at subarachnoid. Did I make an error? Was that the, the evolution of the disease that happens? And the finality of when diagnosis is rendered has been an issue. The other thing is diagnosis, a lot of things we don't have gold standards for. I mean, a massive number of things, like everything from the common cold to some autoimmune diseases. Um, they don't have gold standards in the way that some pathologic diagnoses are, so there's actually, it's up for debate. Um, there is progress that's being made there on two levels. One, people are starting to do electronic medical record triggers. They say, listen, if someone has chest pain and then they come back um, seven days later and they have an MI and earlier there was a rendered diagnosis that was benign, that's probably a diagnostic error. And, and uh, there's some big data methods that are being do done now to try to capture it. But it's still a tricky problem. So let's turn to artificial intelligence and the role of computers. So I have a daughter starting medical school here in two months. Um, if she asked me what fields she should not go into because they will not exist 20 years from now, what should I tell her? Ah, you, uh, are we going after specialties or are we going after a whatever? whatever <laughs> I, not, I'm not saying we're not going after anyone. We're just <laughs> are we making job, an educated guess about the, the way uh, the computer is going to change the practice of medicine and, and whether uh, the role of artificial intelligence in making diagnoses. Yeah, which I will change, certainly change the nature of almost everything, including what you and I do, but probably sort of change who's doing what. Yeah, I think, you know, of course, as soon as Watson beat uh, Ken Jennings on Jeopardy a couple years ago, everyone asked that natural question. Like, if Watson can beat Ken Jennings, then could a Dr. Watson be a Dr. House? Um, I think the early story with Watson, just to give an example, is that it hasn't made great inroads in diagnosis. It's not that it won't, can't or it won't. But it does show how devilishly difficult it is compared to some of the other things it's doing now, like trying to crowdsource research articles and pick the best uh, chemotherapeutic regimen or something along much more narrow space. Like when we diagnose someone, we're like, we're literally asking what's wrong with this human that's sitting in front of us, right? Um, and sometimes we think that that task is the amalgamation of just data that sits out there and there's no reason a computer couldn't put it together. But I think there's, there's Here's my thought that probably for the next five to ten years, we need to start getting good at integrating the computer's thought. You know, you know, there's a very big difference between a PET scan and an AI system. They're both super high tech, but the AI, the PET scan just gives you data and then the doctor's brain is still responsible for putting it all together, right? The difference with these AI systems, and they can be as accessible as something like Isabel or Visual DX or something as complicated as these deep neural networks and Watson, is that it's not giving us uh, data, it's doing some of the thinking for us, right? And it's no different than saying, how much do I trust the input of my colleague or my consultant? Um, but it's fundamentally, I, this may sound like being a Luddite, but I feel like it's just gonna feel like another test that's in the room. Mm -hmm. So that if the, um, we plug in all the patient's data and it's even grabbing stuff that you and I can't think about, like their mood last week and their blood pressure from seven years ago, and it says, you know what, I think there's a 93% probability that this is amyloidosis. Like, you know, I would love that assist, right? Uh, but it remains a probabilistic enterprise. Um, and you can see that now because we have shades of it already in our life. You know, um, like for instance, we have the EKG machine, right? Like the EKG machine, it reads out, it's sort of a form, it's a mini form of a canary in the coal mine of artificial intelligence. And you guys probably know attendings who are like, oh, I, you know, I don't look at that. You should read the cardiogram for yourself. But you know they look at it. <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know they look at it because everyone looks at it. Like everyone wants an assist. Like you're happy to have something else uh, think alongside of you. 
but you're not beholden to that interpretation, right? So if that's sort of an early iteration of it, these AI machines that come along are going to be infinitely smarter than the um, EKG machine. But there's no way that our brain is going to resist not thinking about the assist. But um, a world where the brain takes over and you, know, you sit down as a patient, you say, hey, doc, you know, what's wrong with me? Like, oh, the computer's going to tell us. Like, that, that is harder to see around diagnosis than it is around some of the more narrow questions. What do you think it is, though, that, that you are doing in a fundamental way that the computer won't be able to replicate? I think you know, I tend to start with something like radiology where it's reading a, it's doing visual pattern recognition. That seems reasonably straightforward, although hard. That's right. What you do is more complex, more moving pieces, temporal issues, all those sorts of things. But at the end, you would think that if a computer can look at 10 million patients and look at what doctors thought and what doctors said it was and actually do the follow-up that you have to do yeah. in a painful way as a ritual and see what the diagnosis turned out to be, then over time, I'm trying to, I, I sort of feel the same way you do, but I'm trying to articulate what it is that we do. What is the special sauce yeah. that a doctor brings that a computer won't be able to replicate and do it in a way that takes away my and the human ego. Yeah, as, no, you know, how can they possibly do what I do because we train so long? <laughs> no, my calculus isn't, uh, at, least, uh, at least on a conscious level, it's not at the ego thing. Like what we do is so amazing that no computer can replicate it. It's more my admiration for how the computers are trained now. So they're trained by machine learning, right? And machine learning is phenomenal. You, uh, people write algorithms for the computer to learn, but it fundamentally amounts to feeding it massive amounts of data. Um, and then once it's given enough data, the computer is smart enough to see patterns that we don't even see as humans. So you might be like, I'm beholden. I keep, ca I keep calling fever, cough, and infiltrate pneumonia. That's what someone told me in a lecture 20 years ago, and I've been stuck with that ever since. And if we feed the, the computer you know, 10,000 pneumonias, they'll be like, you know, you idiot, you guys call pneumonia when there's no infiltrate, and you call pneumonia when there's no cough. I think there's something else that's better than doctors call. Uh, this thing, pneumonia, is more complicated than you make it out to be. My question, and, and other like the big win that, that happened in the past year is the computer has matched or outwitted humans in melanoma detection, pneumonia detection, pneumothorax detection, some path um, detection, heart rhythm detections. The computer is matched or won in all of those. But the key thing I watch in each of them is that the data set has been phenomenal. Like there has been an amazing data set that the person has been, or they, sorry, the computer has been trained on. They've been human created. What I have a hard time thinking about with general medicine practice is where that data set is going to come from because it's not the EMR. The, e the EMR that we have doesn't capture all the data points that are needed to solve someone's problem. Even if you add in things like natural language processing and all the other amazing things that are happening, there has to be some other data set where everything that matters, because what happened with the EMR right now is just a curated, filtered thing that a doctor enters. Yeah. And maybe you can add some Fitbits and some vital signs and, other, and some genes in there, and it might pick up some data points. But it's the, it's the data set that I'm wondering will come from. What we do now is, we, I myself don't know what the data set is that we got our diagnostic skill from. It's tens of thousands of patients over a number of years. Do you think the importance of the label is going to go down over time, that it it's not that important that we call this thing pneumonia or not. It turns out that when the patient has this white count, this infiltrate, this lactate, that when they got treated with this thing, they did better, and when they didn't, they did worse. 
Yeah, I think that, in fact, I would say to some degree we do that already. So there's no reason that we would have a, um, we would have a concern around pneumonia. Again, if you watch our practice around pneumonia, we call all sorts of things pneumonia. People squint and see infiltrates <laughs> when they really want to see them. Um, and people call, you know, they call a fever a fever when they like. We already have fuzzy logic around the margins. Um, and the computer may pick up on it and say, yeah, there's, there's a constellation that benefits from antibiotics. Whether, whether you give it a label that makes you or the patient feel better it almost becomes, um, uh, it's almost like a marketing thing. Well, we sort of have to for billing purposes. Yeah, and there billing are some and administrative reasons we need to, but it, it, it's, you feel like it's not that fundamentally important to the whole process. But that end game where we, symptoms to, symptoms to treatment without an intermediary label, I think would be a long ways away, but I, it's conceivable. You haven't mentioned anything about the physical exam. How, how important is it to you and how good are you at it? Uh, no, fair, fair question. I'd say it's as important to me as any other data set, and I'm not a romantic about it. Like I, am, I feel like I'm good, or I would say sufficient, at the things that I need to do every day to solve the problems I need to get better at. So it's where I work, right? Like I work in, a, in the emergency room, so there's a series of things I'm increasingly confident on over time, like things that I didn't learn in residency, like the joint exam or the ear exam. Um, and then there's things that uh, were held up as being iconic, uh, that I learned about residency, like the cardiac physical exam. And I sat through all the same lectures and as aspired to learn all the same murmurs I was supposed to learn. Uh, but what happens is the brain is a ruthless editor. My, my brain is no different than yours. It is a ruthless editor. So I was told to listen for pericardial knocks and hope I can hear the, the rumble of mitral stenosis. And I love it when those moments happen. But the truth is what my brain has done is over 20 years of practicing in an emergency room and clinic and wards has said, note to self, there's kind of like four or five murmurs that I need to know really well. And it's served me incredibly well to know a flow murmur, aortic stenosis, mitral regurgitation, tricuspid regurgitation, and a pericardial rub. Like if I've continued, and maybe AI, like I'm continually trying to get better at those. Um, and I've relinquished to some degree that any patient's um, health should be dependent on me um, hearing their mitral stenosis murmur or, or if the chips are down, like looking in the back of their eye, which I do, but not at a level where someone's health decision should be made on it. Because I, I've upskilled in areas that have served me well and I haven't kept up in areas that don't show up in my practice. But I'll say this about the physical exam. I treat the physical exam the way I treat that AI thing. That is just another input into my brain, at least for now. Um, and maybe AI can take over. I will say there's a modification. This is artificial intelligence, not aortic insufficiency. Oh, yeah, right, yeah, good right. point. I, <laughs> <laughs> you might have thought I was talking about aortic insufficiency. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah. yeah. That there's a whole other aspect of the exam that probably we're going to have to learn about, which is, and the house staff already way ahead of me on, like using the ultrasound machine, right? That's now become part of the physical exam. There's the next horizon of the physical exam, which is already coming, which is not can you palpate the person who's sitting right there, but can you instruct them through a computer screen how you do a telemedicine physical exam. So physical exam will evolve. Um, it's just going to have all these growth points, but it, it isn't, uh, I don't have nostalgia for the things that we used to use. I want to continually get better at the stuff that I do use every day. Right. We'll open it up to the audience in a sec. My last question is, you've given folks advice about how to be a better diagnostician. Uh, what general career advice do you have? You've probably heard a ton over the time yeah. as you were, you were coming of age. Uh, what piece of advice do you think are really useful, particularly for folks that want a career in academia? Yeah, I, I mean, there's so, many, there's so much great advice I got on the spot. It's hard to remember. I might uh, just share one reflection on my career, which is that... Um, 
you know, I'm on my 17th year in faculty and I have the same job as I signed on for. Like my work schedule now is the exact same one as I had 17 years ago. So I'm 80% clinical and 20%, sort of, or maybe 15% administrative. The only big admin job I have that's fixed is I run the clerkship at the VA for internal medicine. Um, and there's two things about that I would say, which is that um, the reason I do that is because I'm sort of modeled after a researcher. Researchers oftentimes are in an 80-20 mix, but it's the exact opposite. But the way I tell people is the two things I'm trying to get better and better at, and I hope I'm better at five years from now than I am now, is uh, thinking about cases and teaching. So that 80, that's my 80%. That is my lab. That's where I acquire skills. That's where I fail at skills. That's where I practice at skills. And so I've kept that huge part of it because that's my number one value. Uh, and then you know, running the student clerkship and whatever academic things I can do on the side, which are important and rewarding to me, I do in the 20%. So I just put it as a model that whatever, you should do whatever it is that you want to excel at. Many researchers need to excel and so it requires 80% of your time. Many uh, people want to build curricula and do med-ed research and um, scholarship around it. You need to give it a ton of time, and many people administer and, and need to do it. But the flip side to that is to say just because, and my job description looks the same, just because your job description stays the same. I haven't asked for, sought, or accepted any promotions. I have the exact same job as I have when I started. But I've taken a ton of stretch assignments. And so I would say, like, you know, you cannot do the same job even though you have the same job description. And so over time, you know, you serve on committees, you serve in societies, you um, do peer reviews or write. And technically, there are things that are added on to your day job. Um, many of them are time limited. But I will tell you, I think they're very important for uh, two things. One is sort of citizenship and committing to the general community. Um, so you have to find ways to do that. That's how academics um, thrives, and that's how the profession thrives. Uh, but the other is it's incredibly enriching. Like, you know, um, a couple months ago, Bob asked me to chair a search committee. I've sat on a bunch of search committees, but then uh, Bob said, could you co-chair a search committee with Lisa Winston? And it was a tremendous amount of work, but it was also a tremendous growth point for me. And now I'm back to my day job, but I'm a little bit the wiser because I did it. So even if you keep your day job, um, you have many reasons and opportunities to grow, and that's, I think, what characterizes what I've done. You mentioned a lot about um, like input into the computer and, and yeah. as we think about AI, but particularly as somebody who works in the ED a lot, how do you think about time as a diagnostic tool and about progression of disease, and how does that factor into what you do and how many tests you send? Yeah, well, the e ED is sort of a, again, intern is often, and I would encourage anyone, if you can work in the ED, please do it. It's an amazing diagnostic lab. Um, and I credit a lot of my growth and skill to that area. But I think the ED is time pressured, right? And so uh, a lot of what you wind up doing is making a decision about how much diagnosis do I do now versus how much triage do I do in that setting. Whereas in my other settings, I'm more often I'm focused on getting the diagnosis right. Um, I think the ED benefits because it has a huge amount of uh, resources available to it. So if you need to answer questions, blood tests, scans, and to some degree consultants are available, and, and I, I count consultants in part of my learning tool. Um, but the part about the ED is it is time limited, and the two problems with that is one that I, well, in, in the VA I do know the patients, but you may not know the patients if you're in an urgent care sort of ED practice, and so you're handicapped by that. And the second is uh, if you don't, and I don't know if you're meaning like how compressed the time is we have with patients, is that, is that what you're getting at? How often do you say, I don't need the diagnosis now, I'm going to let time give me the answer? Oh, right. The, I'm sorry, you're absolutely right. That's probably the more valuable part of ED. It only, in a closed system, you're allowed to do that. So the VA is a closed healthcare system. So most of their healthcare is going to happen in our system afterwards. And so 
you're right. I can, I can many times not expend diagnostic energy, money, resources, or empirically treat because I'm comfortable watching over time. And I will say that watch, you know, I think we've moved into a high-value care um, era, but it's easier said than done. But a lot of what being in the ED and on the inpatient ward and clinic being in three settings has taught me is that oftentimes the best thing is really to do nothing. It's not that I haven't made mistakes on it, but that things get better on their own or things that we framed as being urgent when we, when we check the chart or invite them back a week later go away on their own. And I think that's, um, even in, in the inpatient setting or clinic, our time is short. So you have to have some tracking system. So maybe it sounds like maybe more comfortable than used to be, saying let's just wait and see yeah. how things go. And, and I think maybe if, it's, if I can mel- emerge that into experience, what is experience? So in, in school and residency, we appropriately learn about worst case scenarios or how things might go awry. Like your brain has to be aware of those, right? Um, but there's no way to calibrate the brain on how often those things don't play out. Um, until you have a huge denominator. Um, and so one of the things I, I would credit anyone who does a long uh, practice on is like the n- numerator gets implanted, what could happen or what this looks like early on. But as that denominator builds out, you get a better sense of the base rate of things happening. And so sending this low-risk chest pain out usually works out just fine. And many back pains, even with a single red flag without neurologic compromise, oftentimes are going to be all right. I mean, those are things you I probably shouldn't have uttered on camera, but the, yeah. they oftentimes, <laughs> so they, they oftentimes uh, turn out just okay, but the only experience is the thing that sort of teaches you that. It also teaches you the missteps you make as well. So we have a lot of diagnostic uncertainty that we face on the wards, and interestingly, when you read uh, patient satisfaction comments, a lot of the comments are, the doctors had no idea what was going on with me, they couldn't figure out what was going on, I was there for two weeks and I don't even know what I mm-hmm. still have. Have ways that you've found to express diagnostic uncertainty and the effort that we are all doing to try and come to a diagnosis or present a framework to patients of how we're thinking of disease that you have found resonates with patients and takes away that feeling for them of the doctors don't know what's going on. Yeah, no, I, I know that feeling very well, and we sometimes hear the same thing. I think um, your, your first part of that question is, is there a way to communicate with people about sort of probabilities and uncertainty and um, we don't know what's going on. And I, I'm not Bayesian sure... Bayesian reasoning. Yes, or Bayesian, Bayesian reasoning. <laughs> pull out like a pre-test and post-test <laughs> graph and draw the line. Yeah, I don't think... I, I wouldn't claim any expertise in having um, mastered how to communicate that because it certainly varies from person to person. I do feel like the one thing uh, when people find themselves caught in a diagnostic dilemma as inpatient or outpatient where I feel like I can give them some relief is when you give them assurance that the doctors are all talking to each other about it. So there's two dimensions of that. The doctors don't know what's going on. Oftentimes, there's just a general regret that I haven't been labeled properly. And a label means a lot to a patient, appropriately so. But the second, there's almost always the second uh, sentence that follows is, and it doesn't seem like anyone's talking to each other. And so uh, in challenging cases like that, one of the things particularly I have as the generalist is I can assure them, like, I know Dr. X by name, and I have talked to her about your case at length. And I do do that. That's oftentimes the only thing I can offer the patient is say, we are in, we're going in a direction, and I have assurance for you we're doing that because I've coordinated your care or talked about it. But I agree. There's even studies that show that as much as um, we might want to virtuously tell people we don't know what's going on, it does lower patients' confidence when they hear more and more expressions of uncertainty, even though it's a virtue in our world to say we're still sorting this out rather than putting a label on that's premature or uh, wrong. I wanted to ask you, we've spent most of the time talking about diagnosis, but mm-hmm. you're also a fabulous teacher. Mm-hmm. Would you comment on that a little bit? You know, 
how do is it Socratic method, group teach, learning, example, yeah. et etc. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. And I will say, like when I started, my aspiration was much more about being a good teacher. Um, like I said, my early early days was when I was doing research projects as a resident. My real um, mental tug was I realized the opportunity cost of not being able to te- read and teach about medicine. So I had an early affinity for it. But I think there's a bit of melding, which is in all these things that I've um, trying to develop sort of personal growth, um, I started to recognize that there's certain ways that the brain learns better. There is a science. It's actually called the learning scientist, which is sort of this merging of cognitive science and neuroscience and memory, like how the brain learns. And I think um, this may be my retrospective story, but I was always cued in on like what are the things that helps the brain learn better. And you know, you quickly learn from teaching that long recitations didn't work, that complicated ways of describing things didn't work, that um, super nuanced things didn't work, um, at least at, at certain levels. And you started to recognize, or at least I came to recognize that very brain-friendly things, things that are short, things that have analogies, things that have emotional resonance. I mean, they're all in the portfolio of what people sometimes say great teachers do. Um, and I either stumbled upon them, but I probably think I've been very informed by learning, like, this is the way things stick in the brain. Because ultimately, that's the teacher's goal, right? It's that when I'm not here, I left the mark in your brain so you're able to do it um, without me. Um, and I feel some fortune that the, my two interests have merged in that way. As you were talking about that, I was wondering, are you more assiduous at getting, uh, about getting feedback about your teaching the way you are, about getting feedback about what made the right diagnosis? Uh, great question. Uh, no, but I definitely have an iterative process. So sometimes people will say, like, um, uh, you know, I give talks at Chalk Talks and things, and sometimes you, you guys have seen it in my attending rounds. I take uh, pictures and notes after I teach virtually any subject that's sort of composed. And sometimes people will come up to me and they'll be like, you know, that was an epic talk on hematuria. Or that was, you know, thank you, you made, you know, leukemia so crystal clear. And it warms my heart, but the, what I don't tell them is like, you're so lucky you're seeing this. This is like version 9.0. Um, and the early iterations of virtually anything that I taught weren't that good. And these things like keeping track of how I confuse them, uh, where I lost them when they started going on their cell phone, when I taught it, but then they misspoke it the next week. If you start keeping mental track of when your teaching didn't stick, then, um, then you revise your teaching script or the, the file that you're going to, the program you're going to run next time. And that I've definitely done. I have uh, tons of screenshots of boards that I've taught over the years. Well, one of the things that impresses me most about you, we'll end with this, is just the amount of, as accomplished as you are, the amount of humility that, is, that A, you just have because you're you, but B, that actually is necessary for you to be you. That, you. that you're constantly saying, I'm not as good at this as I'd like to be, and I'm open to the feedback that I need to get better. That's just a very rare skill. Well, I appreciate it. I would love, I, I hope when in five years come, like I'm infinitely better at both of those things the next five years than I am now, and I, and I hope that for everyone else in this room as well. Great. Let us end there. Thank Thanks so much. It was terrific. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv. Thank you.